Welcome to Sustainability Bridges, a URCIF podcast aimed at building bridges between policymakers, investors, academics, and civil society around the theme of sustainable investing. URCIF is the leading pan-European association, promoting sustainable finance and sustainable investing at European level. In this podcast, the executive director of URCIF will invite distinguished guests for a 30-minute conversation on current events shaping the sustainable investing community. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Victor van der Horn. I'm the executive director of Eurosif. For this episode, I'm honored and delighted to be joined by Julian Kolbel, assistant professor of sustainable finance at the University of St. Gallen, who used to work until recently at the Center for Sustainable Finance and Private Wealth at the University of Zurich. Together today, we are going to discuss about sustainability-linked bonds, as well as focus on the very hot topic of ESG rating. Julian, it's great to have you today on our podcast. It's a pleasure to be here, Victor. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Let's jump right in. Um, you recently wrote a very interesting paper, uh, and I just wanted to, to you know, pick your brain on that. Uh, a key and fundamental question for policymakers in their drive to develop sustainable finance is, is it cheaper as a company or government to get financing if you have strong sustainability credentials? Or from a different perspective, are investors willing to take a discount on their returns to fund True Green? Yes, Victor, I think that is the million dollar question in sustainable finance to me, right? There's so much excitement and movement in this area. And, and yes, as you put it, the key question, you know, do companies or governments now have an incentive to become actually more sustainable? It is a question where I think the answer is to some extent still developing. My my current take would be maybe a little bit, right? So I think uh, there's a lot of scope for such an impact to be the case, but it probably is more under special conditions and it also has, has its limits. Now, from the investor's perspective, if we, if we start there, my belief is that there is a, a share of investors who are quite willing to sacrifice something in order to influence the economy. If anything, I believe that is still a little bit underestimated because it deviates from the classic model of a rational investor who will care exclusively about risk and return. So there are studies, for instance, by Paul Smeets and colleagues at the University of Maastricht where they ask pensioners uh, whether they would be in favor of changing the way their pension is invested. And they tend to say yes, even if they believe that they're going to make a small financial sacrifice. So I think there's real evidence that, that investors have a preference for sustainable investments, broadly speaking. And you, quite frankly, you also see that in the market by the sheer popularity of, of sustainable funds. On the side of the investors, I think there's a preference for sustainability, and that implies um, from their side, at least private people, I think, have some of them have a willingness to, to pay for sustainability. Now, how big 
that willingness to pay is and how careful they are in adjusting that to the product that they get. Those are still issues I think that we need to see. In one experiment that we've run, we find that people are quite willing to pay for the sustainable option, but they do not really differentiate how sustainable it is. Uh, and, and, and we inform people about very explicitly about the impact that this investment would have in terms of CO2 emission savings. But we find approximately the same willingness to pay to save 500 kilograms of CO2 and five tons of CO2. So a factor of 10 more, but the willingness to pay remains the same. So investors have this preference, but I think they still have difficulties really valuing impact and, and discriminating how good is a product in terms of impact. So I think that's the investor side. On the company side, there are a number of models that suggest there should be such an effect. So if there are enough investors who prefer green firms, then green firms should have an advantage in terms of cost of capital. Now, empirically, really, that's still, I think uh, it's still up for debate whether that is the case. We have the the German twin bonds where Germany issued uh, a regular and a green government bond on the exact same day. There seems to be a small premium, but I think for in the case of Germany, I think that premium is too small to incentivize Germany to do anything differently. So a lot of the question empirically hinges on how big is the premium. That's one thing. And the other thing is whether the person responsible, so for a company that might be the CFO, whether they believe there is a premium, right? That is ultimately uh, decisive on whether they do something differently or not. We, we as academics, we can you know, make a measurement and say, well, we believe the premium is here. But at the end of the day, the CFO has to say, well, I believe if we enhance our ESG profile, we get a certain advantage in terms of our next bond issuance, and that's going to be so and so large. And then they know how much money they have to take into their hands. I guess from that perspective, it's both a question of convincing the CFO and the CEO that there is a discount to be had when you're truly green, but equally it's premised on the ability of the investors to be able to distinguish what is true green from the these changes, which are probably slightly smaller. So it, it must be a combination of both, right? Yes, you are absolutely right. It's, it's a combination of both. And it, it takes two to tango in that sense. It takes the investors who are willing to do this and, and, and the CFO who is you know, willing to move forward. And I, I think there's a really interesting element, which is about authenticity and trust. We have this small improvement, such as you report the numbers that you already have in a slightly different format, or you add an indicator, or you put a policy that you already have internally on the homepage. You know, these are fairly minuscule improvements, cost almost nothing. And I think firms will very quickly do that if they realize, okay, that, you know, enhances the ESG profile. The interesting bit is the things that cost money. And maybe not just as an upfront cost, but also in terms of a risk. So for instance, if you think of car producers, there is obviously a shift going on towards electric vehicles, battery electric vehicles. And ESG investors, to some extent, may be pushing for car companies to do this faster or have been pushing in the past as well. And I think there's an interesting question about commitment. 
So that's a massive investment for the car company usually. And there is a there is a risk that uh, margins for the you know next couple of years will be less good uh, because currently most electric vehicles don't don't sell at great margins. So for the for the as, from a strategy perspective, you have to wonder. Well, I have these ESG investors who tell me you know do more electric cars, but if I take the twenty billion and do that, and then my margins don't look so good, will they jump ship next year? Uh, or will they actually stick with me because I, you know, I did what they asked me to do? So I think there is something about authenticity on behalf of the investors, and that's more the institutional type now. No, to to ask things that you actually believe in and that you're actually also willing to put some money behind in terms of maybe increasing your position or something like that. My feeling is we we've done interviews with 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 um, investor relations folks and CEOs that. They're trying to feel this out a little bit, sort of how much action is behind this ESG conversation that we're having. Uh, that is very important for them. No, because I, I, I guess you know, we, we on your paper uh, that, you, that you published, which which made the headlines. Uh, you, we saw that that also behind that there is a a great growth rate on the number of sustainability linked bonds being issued out there in the markets and i think that's the whole question that out there is do those bonds with the right indicators have the you know really the potential to fundamentally change those corporate strategies and get this new business models that we need in a net zero world for example if you talk about climate or at this stage are we more about kind of symbolic virtue signaling or Saying I'm green, but but it doesn't have that premium to trigger those those in-depth corporate changes. So I think in in principle, I'm I'm relatively confident that sustainability-linked bonds are are a useful mechanism, precisely for that reason that they make this commitment on both sides very explicit. So the typical structure is corporate issues a bond and says, well, in five years we're going to achieve target X. And uh, if we don't achieve it, we'll pay an extra 25 basis points uh, on the principal. So there's implicitly a, a penalty if you don't achieve the, the target. So the, the company sort of comes out and commits, well, this is what we're going to achieve. On the side of the investor, it's kind of a pay for success scheme. So if you're interested in that impact that is uh, reflected in the target, so then either you get your impact so that the company achieves the target or if they don't you get your money back so in that sense it's a it's a square deal i think but in our study we sort of look at the pricing of of sustainability linked bonds and and we find that there are there seems to be i mean this is a working paper and and we're still working on it but but sort of our first set of results suggested that there have been a number of slbs around 50 or so that were priced at issue at a substantial discount uh, so that the company immediately uh, had an advantage by issuing that bond compared to a conventional bond. And that that advantage was in some cases so large that even if they didn't achieve the target, they would still walk away with, with a couple of million of euros uh, benefit. Um, so in that sense, then, you know, you start questioning whether the mechanism is really working because companies 
you know, in that case, it it might not even be virtuous signaling. It might be pure and simple financial optimization if, if it works that way. Although I think this is a growing pain. So, you know, it's a very early market. And I think we were the, the first to sort of study some of a sample of 100 bonds to look at that. Maybe that is just going to go away uh, next year. So we're looking into one idea that we have is that maybe there were multilateral development banks behind some of the early SLBs just to get this off the ground. So that's something we want to look at. And, and they, might have, they might have taken that loss simply to you know, establish the concept. Something like that. I think in the future, investment banks and also investors in SLBs, they should, be, they should become better at looking at the target, thinking you know, what is the likelihood that the company is going to achieve that target? What is an appropriate step-up penalty? It, it can't always be 25 basis points. This would need to be commensurate with the ambitiousness of the target. Do you think do you think we could see in the future a world whereby the investors, a lot of whom are in our large financial institutions committing to net zero themselves, would start to look favorably on you know sustainability linked bonds that have those science-based target setting in a way that, that that could align with those net zero targets they set themselves? Is, is, is that something we could see as development? Yeah, I think that's that's something we could see. Although I think sort of a, a, I think climate change and sort of the, the transition to a net zero economy is I mean it's quite a beast. It's it's so hard to make this work. And I think it's almost kind of the 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 biggest problem you could try to address with sustainable finance mechanisms. And I believe that SLBs, even if they are perfect, are are doomed to achieve anything if there is not in parallel a regulatory effort to sort of rein in the cost of carbon uh, at at an international level. So uh, I think it can support such a broader uh, effort. Uh, and so I think it's it's quite consistent. If as an investor you've committed, you know, to to a net zero 2050, and then you you know you provide an additional incentive to to the companies you in, you invest in to achieve that, I think that's perfectly consistent. But we shouldn't expect that that in and of itself will make the transition happen. Yeah. So it's uh, so if I summarize. It's a good in market incentive for companies, but we need something more structural if you want to achieve the climate objectives within the time frame we have. Yes, I think the incentives will be too small to really sort of drive a massive transition. Uh, but on the margin, they are still helpful. Okay, great. Maybe you know, moving on to the you know kind of exciting instruments that we're seeing and the trends we're seeing in the market. Clearly, one of the hot topics over the last weeks has been you know ESG ratings, uh, and we have had you know people like Elon Musk uh, go on Twitter and rail at ESG. We've had seen some you know former presidential candidates in the U.S. also coming out and reading it as ESG ratings. Now, I know that, that you, together with a number of other academics, have published a very exciting paper on you know, the, the ESG rating space and aggregate confusions. What, what, are, what did you uncover in that, in that research? 
Yes, so this is with colleagues from, from MIT Sloan, Florian Burke and Roberto Rigobon. Uh, it is indeed titled Aggregate Confusion, and, and, and we somehow launched that term. Uh, what we do is we just compare six different ESG raters uh, for a sample of uh, 924 companies, and we show first that there is considerable divergence between those ratings. So correlations are at uh, 54%. And that sort of to put that in the right perspective, that means, and there's also a nice plot that comes with it. So you see that it's actually what's quite rare is that two raters have diametrically opposing uh, opinions. So a company that is top in one rating system and rock bottom in another, that is actually almost unheard of. But what you still have, and, and which is still you know, enough for debate, is that it is actually really difficult to say whether a company is more kind of average or really a, a leader, right? So, so that difference is, is difficult to make. Uh, that's the degree of the divergence. And then we dig deeper into that and we find that the key driver of divergence, there are, you know, there could be several reasons and in principle, Divergence is maybe not a problem. We we want some diversity of opinion, given that corporate sustainability is is a complex issue. Um, but there's sort of two broad reasons why there would be a divergence, and one is, well, there are different definitions of what it means to be a sustainable company. So it depends, for instance, which which issues are included. Climate change, yeah, that's probably included. Then you have the social category, labor, it's probably included. But there's you know a lot of categories that you could include. For instance, one that we find is not included everywhere is taxes. How much taxes do corporations pay? You know, you could argue that's maybe an important part of being a sustainable company, but and you might or argue, well, no, that's something different. So there you can disagree. The others is how important is now labor versus climate, right? You can give different weights to these things. I think these are good reasons to diverge. It's just important to understand why ratings diverge. And the other reason that is more problematic, I think, is, and we find that drives divergence by more than half, is that within the same category of, let's say, labor relations, different raters have really diverging assessments within that category. And, and that is confusing, right? If, if, we, if we can't agree that this particular firm now, does it have good or bad labor relations? And, and if anything, the divergence gets stronger if you sort of start drilling down into these categories. So I think this points to two you know, remedies, one of which is to be very explicit what this rating is measured and what's the underlying definition of corporate sustainability. Chiefly among that is, is this more uh, related to financially material risk to the company or is this more about the impact of the company on the world. These are sort of fundamentally opposing viewpoints that there's an overlap, but that needs to be clear. And the second one is that some degree of harmonization in this underlying data um, would be helpful. No, absolutely. It's, uh, I think that, that that's interesting. What, what, one of the things that that, that that puzzles me as well is the you know is, is it so surprising that we have that difference if we're trying to condense and aggregate so many different variables in one ultimate score, which sounds like taking the the complexity of the world and 
distilling it down to one particular score for a company. Now, do, you know, do you get a sense of, of what the, the what future developments around ESG ratings might be? Is that something that you expect will, will grow in importance? Is that something that where people may shift more towards individual data points on the E, the S, and the G? It's, it's hard to say really where this is going. I, I think it's a very dynamic market, both in terms of innovation as well as regulation. Sort of the top level ESG rating is kind of the, the you know, that's the, the most obvious thing that people use at the when they first look into that space. And then, you know, quickly people realize, oh, hang on, there's a whole lot of complexity underneath that number. And, and then maybe you want to start to dig deeper. I see larger investors building their own assessment framework. So they would rely more on, on data points and, and build it together themselves. What I hope is that I think competition is good in this space, but competition should be on quality. So, so I think regulators should take care to create an environment where ESG raters compete on sort of transparency and quality. And, and, and not so much perhaps on, on coverage and, and, uh, and, and market power. So I think that should be a regulatory goal, not to quash the divergence at all. Well, I already went kind of into the implications, but where I see this going is critical appraisal and, and due diligence of, of, of what, how data is generated, how it is processed. I, I have hope that a greater number of people dealing with that seriously will simply lead to better measurements and a better understanding why things do sometimes diverge for good reasons and and a sort of weed out disagreements that are unwarranted because they just somehow point to different facts which shouldn't be the case obviously you know we you, you've touched already on the on the topic of, of regulation and I think you know we we saw late last year uh, the uh, International uh, Organization for Securities Markets Regulator IOSCO uh, published a number of, of recommendations and principles around ESG ratings and, and data providers. I think we're now seeing a number of jurisdictions internationally building on those recommendations. I think notably uh, India has launched a project for regulation. The UK is considering it as well as the the, the, the EU. You, you, as you said, you know, like the, there is the, the both at the time the the need for diversity, recognizing it's a complex topic, but also this drive for quality. What 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 what's your view? What is there a particular specific measure that the regulators could put in place to, to, to get the balance right in your view? Yes, I think the uh, one important topic is transparency. You imagine you're a student and you, you take the same subject with two different teachers and one gives you a good grade and the other one a bad grade. So you want to understand why that is. So you want to go talk to them and ask them, you know, how did you assess me this way and that way? And you want to figure that out. And for that, the teachers need to open their book <laughs> and tell you how they did that. So I think that needs to happen to some extent uh, with rating agencies. And, and my experience is that it's not true that they don't tell you that. First of all, often it's under, under NDA until you really understand what's happening. So, so you know, you have to sign some papers and, until you really know. And also, 
you know, transparent. So, so transparency, it's unhelpful if there's a lot of information that somehow doesn't fit together. So you might be confronted with 30 indicators here and 200 indicators there that have different names and different hierarchies. It remains really difficult. That's the work that we've done in our paper to try to come up with a way to, to reconcile that. That's a lot of work. So I would probably recommend two things. The first one I'm fairly confident in is that ESG raters should somehow disclose very clearly what it is that they are measuring. Like basically state the concept that this number is supposed to reflect. I think that's, yeah, I'm pretty confident that that would be helpful because you can kind of infer that a little bit from the history of the institution and, and what they emphasize. But, um, and I understand them, of course, they, they kind of want to cater to a wide client base. So, so you would want to state that a little bit broadly what you're doing, uh, but for the customers it would be more helpful if you would state it more narrowly and be very clear that this is what we're after, this is what we're not after. Or maybe we have two different scores. One does this, one does that. I think that's also helpful. The other thing that comes a little bit out of our paper is that regulators could consider saying, well, maybe they take SASB's 26 issues and say, well, here, here is a grid of issues. You don't have to use them, but please tell us to what extent and how your methodology maps to this. So basically you could, you know, can you please provide a score in each of this subcategory? Because that is going to be easy to compare. Right, because then they kind of it, it's consistent. Uh, you can take writer A and writer B, and maybe not all of them, not both of them cover all the issues, but at least the issues that they both cover, you can compare and you can sort of make up your mind. Well, do I like this measurement better or that measurement better? I believe that would be helpful, and I, I mean, this needs to stand the test of practice. Um, but I imagine that it would be possible to, to do that, and it still allows rating agencies a fair amount of flexibility into how they measure well i guess they they would be encouraged to cover all these boxes but they could go beyond that i mean they can still be innovative and and pursue their own concept but it would allow users two things first of all the comparison is easier second of all and i think that's interesting you could say if you are one of these institutions who say well we mix and match and we buy our own data it becomes very, it becomes modular. So you can say, well, the human rights uh, aspect, we really like this data provider. So we'll, we'll use them there. But for the rest, we use something more standard. You know, it's just an idea, but I, I would like regulators to, to consider that if, if that's feasible and, and bring it into the discussion. Okay, thanks. Thanks for those thoughts. Very, uh, very enlightening. I think the when we look at the discussions in this space, there's indeed always the question of of, of how transparent the methodologies are. You you build on that. You said that, that that you can always go you know dig deeper and get more details. Conversely, I think we may sometimes also see some users maybe not entirely using the ratings in the the way that they you know they are intended to be or the to measure the things that they, they might want to measure with the ratings. Where, where do you think the biggest issue lies here? Is that is that transparency of the ratings or is that more uh, that maybe people make the wrong use of them? Well, it's both. <laughs> I think, you know, a bit more clarity and transparency will uh, avoid some, some of sort of 
inadvertently wrong usage, right? So, uh, so I think that will help. It really depends on, 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 on who these users are. I think there are differences, for instance, do you want to use this as an input to research or do you want to use that to benchmark your product? I think that's quite a different ambition. When you want to use it as research input, then you might actually appreciate diversity and, and raw data and, and complexity because anyways, you want to go deep. If you want to benchmark your product, it is quite annoying that there are different systems. I mean, it depends how you see it. It could be annoying because you wonder which one should I use. It could also be, you know, you could test out which ones makes your product look most favorably and use that. But it's a really different goal for using the ratings. And I think being clear why you are using such a metric is, is anyways the first step to, to, to make a reasonable decision. And then one component that is more on the individual side. So I believe individuals, you know, they don't have time to dive into the complexity of, of the ESG ratings and these methodologies. They basically want a label. You know, they want to, they say there's also different motivations why you might want to invest sustainably. So that might be you want align your values with what you, what you own in your portfolio. You might believe that investing sustainably is, is better in the long term financially because climate risks are being uh, taken into consideration. Or you might say, well, I want to really change the world with my investment. I want to have impact. These are slightly different motivations that ideally I think an advisor would take on board and then sort of take seriously and recommend project products based on that. But even within these three, at the end of the day, the, the client, I guess, would want some sort of authorities that says, well, this product does exactly what you want. But then then the but then you're we're probably talking about labels for financial products rather than necessarily the the ratings of individual companies that, that might be in the portfolio. Right. But they are, I mean, they are related, right? Often labels to some extent at least, they they look at the ESG ratings of, of the holdings. And it, it's just the same problem at a different level of aggregation, I would argue. Maybe, you know, but that, because that, that's interesting, because on the one hand, we have this, this, this ratings trying to take all those complex variables, put them together in one score. And at the same time, we've obviously seen regulatory interventions, I would say, particularly in the EU up to now, with this EU taxonomy, which is trying to bring some sort of scientific benchmark to certain activity, economic activities or the, how sustainable certain investment portfolios are. How, how do you reconcile those? Because on the one hand, there are metrics with a certain degree of appreciation and discretion about methodologies. And on the other hand, you will see the emergence of metrics, which tend to want to bring some, some, some sort of science-based truth or to the, to, the, to the equation. What I think will be helpful is a common database of firm disclosure on, on ESG matters. Because it... So, Sometimes people argue, well, you know, you shouldn't compare ESG ratings with credit ratings. It's more like analyst forecasts and they diverge as well. But I think there are two important differences to analyst forecasts. The one is that all analysts have the same balance sheet and income data, at least in the past, uh, that they 
rely on, and then they make projections into the future. That currently isn't the case with ESG ratings. They all rely on slightly different data bases um, to come up with their assessment and, and a sort of harmonized ESG disclosure will uh, help. I am skeptical. Also, I, I feel the European Union proposal is very ambitious. So it's a lot of indicators and, and, and just the, the complexity of these regulatory documents is to, to an extent that, again, people will want ratings to facilitate that for them. And I think you can already see them lining up, uh, preparing uh, taxonomy alignment scores. And it will be interesting to see how, what the divergence in these scores will be. But at least I think, you know, it could be if you differentiate them, they are differing more on how they interpret the data that firms have disclosed, but at least they, they use the same data. And, you know, then it's more like, Rate uh, analyst forecast. You can have different interpretations of what, of what these cost of capital alignment figures mean. Uh, I think that's going to be interesting. I just feel we should err on this uh, side of a little less complexity rather than more, especially in the beginning. I mean, it's going to be a lot of work for companies to to provide all this data, and uh, we should start a little bit with a narrower scope. Anyways, I think in the, in the greater scheme of things, this is the right direction, yes. Well, Julian, thanks a lot for having covered so much ground today between moving from sustainability bonds and whether investors pay to that for that to ESG ratings and scores, and now finishing off on the broader perspective on the regulation and taxonomy. So thank you very much. And we, you know, we hope some of your predictions will come true and we hope to welcome you again uh, on this podcast in the future. That would be great. So thank you so much for the great questions, Victor. And um, yeah, let's, let's hope things move in the right direction. Thanks for all your good work as well. to the end of this insightful conversation and the end of today's episode. Thank you very much for listening. Do not hesitate to like, follow and share this episode of Sustainability Bridging. Your receipt will continue in the next episode to bridge the gap between the policy making and the practice of sustainable investing with the help of distinguished guests. In the meantime, please visit our website and follow us on social media to stay tuned. See you next time for a new episode of Sustainability Bridges.